to the North Group. Security, refined by intelligence. We're here to spotlight the best practices and critical safety and security issues in today's world and provide actionable strategies that you can implement into your day-to-day -day operations. From the individual to organizational level, our goal is to improve your risk management and response capabilities. Thanks for spending time with us today, and here's your host. Welcome to another podcast here at uh, TNG, the North Group. We're real excited about our guest today. We have Michael Gracie, who's a retired Army colonel and now the city manager of Ashland, Kentucky, uh, amidst the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Steve, do you want to open us up? Good day, Michael. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time. Um, we'll get right into it. You want to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your transition from the military, and, and how that may have prepared you uh, for challenges like a pandemic? Sure, Steve. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, give a perspective, uh, especially I think we're in, in pretty different parts of the country. But it's, uh, it's a great opportunity for us and tell you a little bit about <clears throat> the part of the country I'm living in. Um, son of a soldier. Uh, my dad was uh, retired, retired Army 23 years. I've always been around the Army. Retired after 33 years total service, was prior enlisted in the National Guard and then went on active duty in 1988. Uh, served in air defense artillery the vast majority of the first part of my career. Uh, and then when I was selected for, uh, soon after being selected for lieutenant colonel, was uh, selected to take a garrison command. Uh, spent three years. Uh, some of us had opportunity to go three years in commanding garrison. They realized it was very different than a normal you know, whatever combat arms, combat support uh, command. And the, the Army went back and forth. Some, sometimes they allowed three, sometimes they allowed two. But um, commanded Fort AP Hill for three years uh, in Virginia, training installation, and then did a couple of other things and came back and was selected as a colonel to command Fort Jackson in South Carolina. Again, they gave us the option to go three years. I took it. I really enjoyed the work. It, it just changes. Maybe it supports adult ADD. And I don't mean to, to mock that, but I'm just saying it, you know, just shifts every day. One minute you're in a child development center and the next minute you're, you know, um, in a ditch looking at some electrical challenge or something along those lines. But uh, and then my, my, my final assignment was in the Pentagon where I served as the um, executive officer to the assistant chief of staff for installation management. So kind of like a chief of staff uh, and got to see 16, um, $16 billion budget. It doesn't sound right. It really doesn't sound right. But 156 garrisons uh, that they were responsible for worldwide. Uh, so I, I was able to see it from both the foxhole and then also, you know, from the 30,000 foot view. And um, it, it really helped enable me transition into the duties as a city manager. There, my command and control structure is very similar. As far as the transition from the military, I really miss the culture. I am in uh, extreme Eastern Kentucky, and there's no other than National Guard or reserve units, there's no, uh, and recruiting, which we do have recruiting office in town. I go, I go down there every once in a while to get a little hua. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is the farthest and longest I've ever been away from the military, and I, and I really, really miss the culture quite a bit. And that's nothing against the culture here. It's just, uh, you all know with your backgrounds, being around that culture is, uh, is something you grow accustomed to. Uh, similar expectations, mores, values, and, and I do miss that. Um, 
the, like I said, the duties are, are virtually identical of a garrison commander to a city manager. The, big, the biggest difference is the decision-making process, uh, the effect of elected politics. And again, that's not a pejorative thing. It's just, uh, you know, when you're in the Army, you deal with the military decision-making process, both formally and informally, and that's not how uh, decisions uh, are made uh, and necessarily evaluated. I still try to use a similar process with my staff uh, when I do make recommendations to the mayor and the commissioners. Um, it, it is not a formal MDMP, but I think that's probably the biggest difference. Um, on a personal level, been married for 30 years, almost 31 this summer. Uh, three sons, all married, and just recently blessed with a, uh, a grandchild. Great, Mike. And of course, you and I served together as lieutenants. I was counting this out 31 years ago. We were in Germany um, together, I think freezing out on some field training exercise, and then later connected um, when you were there at uh, AP Hill, and I was um, uh, FBI instructor at Quantico. So, Mike, let me ask you this. Do you feel that your military career prepared you for the challenges of a pandemic? I mean, did you ever really feel that we'd be in this situation? Yes, that <clears throat> it did best prepare me for dealing for a crisis like this and other crises. I pause for a second because, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and looking over on what's going on now, I made a joke with somebody yesterday. How could I not see, you know, two months ago to invest in uh, dominoes? Um, but you you know, as far as what the military does to prepare you to think ahead, to plan ahead, to have contingency plans, um, that's all very true. You know, the type of exercises that we do in preparation for things. Uh, and so I say all of that and it all briefs well, but the fact of the matter is a lot of that, uh, looking over my shoulder, wow, could we have done things differently? Of course we could have. Um, I remember when we did exercises, you know, like at the division or core level exercises where you, you drill on things like this. And, and I, in my mind's eye, I remember getting in those exercises and you just, at some point, you just kind of throw up your hand. You're like, man, we're just kind of screwed when that happens. And the pandemic always seemed to fall into that kind of, into that kind of category. It almost seemed impossible to happen. Uh, a lot of stuff that you'd see on movies and bam, here we are. As far as other military preparation, you know, I think the leadership in crisis, um, trying to stay calm, uh, because I've got a, a staff, an authorized staff of uh, 308 people, uh, and there's 308 different reactions to this. And a lot of their reactions are based on what they experience at home. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday and, and talked about how this, uh, how this shows itself in different ways. You know, there, I had an incident where, where somebody was lashing out pretty hard. I mean, I thought, wow, this is it's just really bizarre and had nothing to do with the, uh, with, with the COVID-19. Um, and you see different stress levels. You know, some people on one extreme, absolutely, I don't know if I'd say still, but some initially did not see this as a threat. Uh, and then others were afraid that, you know, they were going to die that afternoon. So um, trying to manage that, keep everybody calm and focused was a challenge. I think the military especially um, uh, helped me out with the experiences that I had for the, the 30 plus years. That sounds great, Mike. I mean, uh, it sounds like your experience has really prepared you, um, you know, to take on, you know, the, the journey as a city manager here. Uh, talk to me about how, you know, the, the city of 
Ashlyn and, and your staff and your police department and your fire department. Talk to me about how everybody's doing during, during this crisis. Overall, very positive. Um, I look at the citizens, the businesses, uh, different organizations are here. They all, the vast majority of people took the threat very seriously, very early. Much like our, much like most states, our governor has a, a daily press conference. He's had it for a couple of weeks now. No rocket science there. It's just been a calm, steady delivery. And of course, it's turned into a lot of funny memes and whatnot on the internet. Uh, but I think definitely what they've reflected and what they've absorbed from the federal level and then at the state level, that guidance, and then that cascading down to us um, at the city level has had a positive impact. And I've seen that in, uh, number one, in the fact that people, as I mentioned, are very calm. Also, uh, a lot of great teamwork that's happened. And um, you talk about the preparation in the military, how that's done. I, I think you all are familiar with the adage, you never want to meet somebody for the first time in a crisis that, you know, that you really need to know. Um, informally or subconsciously, I, I did that not informally, subconsciously, I think I had taken that lesson from my assignments and uh, in the Army and had reached out to, you know, the Boyd County Emergency Manager, the, um, the Boyd County Judge Executive. That's the county we live in, by the way, Boyd County, Kentucky. And so I, I knew and have developed a relationship with those players over the last almost three years. It's been almost three years since I've, I took over the position. But watching them all come together in a crisis, we had a big deal with uh, hepatitis B, uh, the breakout. I'm not, I'm not sure if you all remember that very much, uh, how that kind of made national uh, news. And we did some things locally. And so we had the opportunity to work with the health department. But watching our Ashland, Boyd County, Catlettsburg emergency management come together, along with the sheriff's department, the local hospital, King's Daughters Medical Center. And I know I'm going to leave people out. Uh, the Boyd County Health uh, Department, uh, it's been very positive. And I think procedurally, uh, things have stayed on, on cue. Again, uh, reporting formats, trying to get PPE. Uh, and I, I, I know we're going to get into that discussion, but it's been a very measured approach, uh, very logical. And I think that's done well for not just Ashland, but the entire county and the region that's been affected by this. Messaging also, making sure that we had good messaging um, to our citizens to keep them calm has been, I think, another success story. Uh, PSAs by our mayor, commissioners, um, and other local officials has been positive. Well, Mike, it sounds like you have a great team there. Um, seems like it's, it's working well. I wanna ask you about risk management. How is the city of Ashland handling that? Do you have a certain personnel that, that oversee that? Or is, again, that a, a team effort? We do. Uh, we're actually blessed to have a risk manager. Uh, he's housed in the HR department in an advisory role, staff advisory role. Um, he focuses on uh, traditionally employee safety, uh, general loss prevention and reduction, uh, and also insurance cost control. He has been more involved since I've been here with some of the force protection things. Um, there were some areas that I was a little uncomfortable with when I came here as far as force protection in regards to 
um, events that we had in the city. And so uh, when I think of force protection here, I really look at my uh, chief of police. He, he pretty much has the lead on that in coordination. Like you said, Brig, it, it is a team effort. Um, but traditionally, Mike, uh, Mike Atkins is our risk manager, has been in, uh, involved in those uh, areas that I've mentioned before. Um, he's pretty much dealt on lagging indicators in the, in the past. So employee injury results, um, incurred insurance, premium reductions, um, things like that. And now we've got an effort that's moving towards leading indicators. So an emphasis on training, uh, groups level projects, um, awareness. He's done a magnificent job in the safety realm for, you know, putting safety boards out there that I'm, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with. Uh, from different units that you've been in and, and you know different units you're in how how they took that seriously or not um, but he's definitely putting his toes more into the uh, into other areas than than I understand he did before and also when I talked to my chief of police and uh, uh, chief of the fire department this is not a position that historically and I'm and I'm not saying since my arrival so don't take it that way uh, but just historically has really grown and evolved uh, in their responsibilities he does a really good job of monitoring both federal and state uh, requirements and pushing that down. And you guys know how much that changes and uh, adjusts. So having somebody solely focused on that uh, is pretty important. In the law enforcement realm, our, our chief, our police department work very closely with the Kentucky League of Cities. Um, they've got a training program uh, and they have a training safety officer. Uh, so they put out guidance as far as both operational and also training scenarios for our police department. Um, and we, we've been participating in that probably for about five years um, and have integrated that into our training and also the operations in the police department. Sounds like you guys are pretty well prepared there in, uh, in Ashland there, Michael. Um, one of the things that's come up with folks we've talked to around the country, both in city management and police departments is, is mutual aid requests and, and out of county communications, out of city communications. Talk to me a little bit about that because coming from a little bit of an incident command background and, and, and having, you know, trained with law enforcement folks, it's, it's interesting to see how some cities, small, large, and medium tend to handle this differently. Um, but I, I've heard of, smaller cities, smaller counties, especially in the South, down there in the Bible Belt, banding together, um, using kind of a mutual aid function uh, for things like, you know, PPE, um, other supplies. So talk to us about that. Talk to us about, you know, how you're working with your network in, in the community. That's yeah, a great point. So uh, our fire department is the only fully professional, I think that's a correct way to say that, east of Winchester. Um, and so Lexington is about an hour and a half, maybe 90 miles away from us. They've got a, a professional fire department. I think, I believe, um, I believe Winchester does also. So uh, we have a ton of volunteer fire departments here and our mutual aid agreements with them are crucial for them. Uh, especially not that it's unimportant for us because there's been times where we've uh, been saturated or for example if we wanted to have our guys participate in some type of uh, honorary uh, 
representation if there's a firefighter that dies or something like that, that to know that we've got somebody that's covering our, our back if we need that. We even, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with where Ashland is located, but it is in the tri-state area of Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky. And we've actually done a mutual aid agreement with the Huntington Airport. Um, so we practice some firefighting uh, methods with them uh, to help in, in a, an emergency situation there. Of course, that airport uh, was made famous by the, uh, the crash in the Marshall aircraft, uh, Marshall football team back, I believe it was 1970. So yeah, the mutual aid is really important. We've got a fantastic fire department, about 50, I think 53 total. That's both firefighters and administrative and inspectors. Um, very experienced police, uh, excuse me, fire chief. Uh, been here 30 plus years. Uh, genuinely good guy. Our police department also has uh, fantastic um, mutual aid relationships uh, with other local law enforcement to include the county. Um, and other small cities that are immediately adjacent to us. So Ashland is about 20,000 people uh, is our population. We peaked in 1970. Uh, the impact of a reduction in steel from uh, Armco Steel and also reduction at Marathon have uh, really affected our population. I think our peak was 32,000 in 1970 and it's been on a decline. It'll be very interesting to see what the census reveals, uh, the upcoming or the ongoing census. Um, because that 20,000 is a big number. Uh, the, the state cities used to be classified by category. Category one were above 100,000 and cat two were 20,000 to 100,000. And so um, I don't want to say it's a WASTA or a, um, trying to think of the word, uh, pride thing, but um, you know, staying above 20,000 is a big deal. We're also, uh, this area was designated as a HIDA uh, just recently. And so we're doing a lot of work with the feds that is, man, just reaping huge, huge benefits for us. We like uh, the rest of the country have got a uh, big challenge with opioids, big challenge with um, problems that are associated with that. And that designation of the HIDA, and I'll give uh, chief credit, um, Todd Kelly has been our police chief. Uh, I think he took over a couple years or a year before I got here, uh, a career uh, police officer over 30 years. His father used to be the chief of police here many years ago and also was a mayor, um, but just a fantastic uh, team that we've got there, very focused. And like most organizations across the country, we don't have the resources. You know, we'd love to have more personnel. We could do more with more personnel, but across the city, we're a pretty cheap date. We get a lot done. 300 sounds like a lot of folks, but when, you know, we run our own utilities. We have our own water treatment plant. We have our own wastewater treatment plant distribution. Uh, and that's a lot of manpower. So my utility section is 70 people. And um, of course, that's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of uh, responsibility, but we get a lot done with those 300, 308 people. I feel as if the, the mutual aid support um, has strengthened your, your, your ability to better help the people. I mean, what, what's your, I mean, as a, not only a, a city manager, but a, a, a renowned military leader um, coming from your background, um, somebody that I can, I can relate to having followed, right, um, on deployments and things like that and looked at that leadership. I mean, what's your recommendation to other city managers and, and executives around the country that are dealing with the stresses of, of building those relationships and, and feeling like they're alone on an island. Well, a really good friend of mine, um, 
Stu McRae was a garrison commander at Fort Rucker when I was at Fort Jackson. And he, you know, some people have sign-offs on their emails, you know, they'll have a Bible verse or something like that. He had one of the most insightful ones and it was, it was very short and pithy, but we move at the speed of trust. And I say that to my staff all the time. And, and I, I quote Stu, I think he coined that. But if I'm not questioning what your motives are, we're moving a, a, at a much, much quicker pace. And um, I think to your point on the mutual aid and people feeling like they're on an island, listen, now's not the time to hunker down in your, uh, in your office. It's really hard for me to get out of this office. I've, I've, I can't do the work from home. Somebody interviewed me yesterday and, um, you know, oh, how much time are you spending at home? Well, I, I took one BTC, but there are still things day to day that go on that I have to be here for. I have to be around the city for. And, um, and it's easy, you know, the tyranny of the inbox, the tyranny of the, the email, uh, that stuff has to be accomplished, of course, because it's important. But to your point on people that feeling like they're alone on an island, man, they, they've got to get out and, uh, you know, really build those relationships. And a lot of times a crisis is an opportunity to do that. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm very blessed because the team in this county is, is very effective. They know what they're doing. I've heard anecdotal stories about other parts of the state where the emergency management, you know, can't get their act together on uh, assisting in FEMA aid for, uh, you know, when we have severe rain events or storm events. And our guys, man, they're just fantastic. And they, while I think I've got a pretty aggressive team in my uh, public services department, we had one of our individuals trained on uh, requesting that FEMA support. Uh, I've got to tell you, Tim England is usually, he's our emergency manager. He's usually ahead of us. Hey, have you guys thought about this? And it always feels good to say, yeah, we're working on it. But, you know, he, he won't let us fall. He won't let us fail. And he's staying ahead of us. And, and that's just, again, the power of that, uh, that teamwork goes a long way. Mike, did you, uh, and I'm assuming you did, um, participate in a number of tabletop exercises, especially as an installation commander. What are some of the general lessons you learned from, from those activities and, and how's it applying to your job today? Yeah, there was a, a ton of tabletop exercises I participated in my career. Um, a, as a garrison, if I recall, we had quarterly requirements to do some type of exercise and an annual requirement to do a full-scale exercise. It, um, of course, you all know this on your experience, just what you get through the TTXs, oh man, I didn't think about that. When the other disciplines come in, that, that's my favorite part of running an organization is when everybody gets together and you think you know what you know, uh, and I love it when it's the newest person or the, I hate the lowest ranking person or whatever, and they're like, hey, have you thought about this? And, you know, all the smart, wise guys are like, well, if, well, maybe we did, <laughs> you know, and they'll come up with something that you, uh, you know, you get to uh, employ and, and make the operation stronger. And of course, you have to have an environment where people feel like they're heard too. You all know, you know that when you've been in an environment and somebody immediately shuts down your idea is stupid. Well, what are the chances that that person's going to open their mouth again? Not very good. Uh, and so classic brainstorming techniques, there's no bad idea. But my experience on the TTXs and the other full-scale exercises was that it, it always prepared us for things. I noticed the trend 
my last couple of years that it seemed like every full-scale exercise was an active shooter. And, you know, it's a threat, right? I mean, it's a very real threat. And so we got on paper, I shouldn't say on paper, training-wise, I thought we, we got pretty good at uh, responding to, you know, an active shooter scenario. My DPTMS, Director of Plans, Training, Mobilization, and Security at Fort Jackson, uh, really stood his guns, I think my second or third year in command, and we had a full-scale exercise uh, that was a chemical spill, and then they also folded in a terrorist attack, if I recall correctly. And so, man, that was really, that was a difficult scenario to deal with, but of course, we all got better because of it. We, uh, we dealt with, I'm going to forget the name of the county down there, I think it was Richland County, their sheriff's department, their um, uh, local hospitals, in addition to our hospital on the installation. Uh, and it was a challenging exercise, but I do remember thinking, um, you know, man, why are we doing this? Uh, you know, what are the chances of this? And I'm glad we, we thought a different discipline than just doing the active shooter. How, how are you handling this? I mean, personally with your family and I mean, you know, with all the professional experience you have, I'm sure you carry a lot of that home with you. But I mean, what are you telling your kids and your extended relatives and, and how are you preparing at home for COVID-19 and, and how do you manage your home life through being so, I'm sure, busy with, with taking care of 21,000 people um, and all the responsibilities that you have? How do you manage through all that and, and also take care of the family? I think Brig would, would reflect this even from 1989 and 1988. I personally always struggled with balance. Um, it doesn't mean I don't value my family. I don't take my family for granted. Um, but even as a, a young lieutenant, I found that to be challenging. I found it to be stressful. Uh, I, I enjoy it, but I simultaneously realize I don't have good balance. And I think I changed personally and professionally even more dramatically after I took my, uh, after I took battalion commander of the garrison at uh, Fort AP Hill. It's, it's really, really difficult to turn it off. Uh, and you can't turn it off. I mean, last night I received, uh, you know, a couple texts from elected officials. I got texts from staff, had a couple of phone calls, um, got home about seven o'clock last night. Again, not complaining. I, I, I'm very blessed to be here. Um, but got home about seven o'clock and then, you know, still did that type of stuff until about 830. Uh, and so intellectually, I understand there's a need to decompress and get away. Um, my wife and I have been gym rats for years when I was in command at Fort Jackson. Really, the only time she uh, the most quality time is we had five different gyms on the installation. So we'd go check a different one out every day just to, you know, I would check it out for to make sure that we we're doing good customer service, but then we'd work out there. And um, I've just continued that in retirement. Um, we go to the Y five days a week, the local YMCA here. Uh, now with that being shut down, I've had to, I've gone back to running uh, Brig. And um, fortunately my knees are, I mean, I'm feeling it. The Achilles and the knees are, but I'm running three days a week. And then I do a CrossFit class that's online that the guy from the Y does. So that, that is a really saving grace for me right now because it is, it is seven days a week. We walk on the weekends. We take some long walks or hikes. Um, but the days I miss that, Steve, I, I just, you know, I find myself just being really, you know, why is this stuff bothering me? Uh, you know, Francie will tell me, my wife say, you need to go out and run, you know, 
when, when something like that goes on. The other thing I've noticed is that uh, we moved into a really old house and there's been a ton of projects that I've been wanting to get done painting and just some like ceiling patches and stuff. And um, because everything's been shut down, there's not uh, events on the weekend that we would go to river cleanups or, you know, altruistic events that, you know, fundraisers for the, the local, uh, uh, we got something called the neighborhood that helps the homeless here. Uh, and so that stuff's all been shut down. So I've been, I've been finding a real cathartic release and just painting trim in the house, I, you know, uh, and then on a very personal level, our grand, our granddaughter's about two months old and, and uh, man, just seeing that is, uh, that'll recharge your battery too. But it's been to your, to your question, it's, it's, it's been tough because uh, this is a crisis. This is a, I mean, my goodness, this is a pandemic. So you want to be available. You want to be there for staff. You want to be there for citizens and, uh, and trying to manage all that and the social media. My gosh, I could go on for days about the impact of social media on cities and organizations. It's been, um, that's been a really, really tough one. And, you know, how people respond to that, both the staff, um, you know, some people think that every single thing needs to be addressed regardless of how ridiculous it is. And uh, that sucks up a lot of staff time. It sucks up a lot of energy. Um, and it's not that it's unimportant, but you all know there's no filter out there that people can put salacious accusations and false accusations. I was really glad to see, oh, what's the name of that thing where people could stay anonymous and make comments? Do you remember that platform? Topics. Uh, when Topics was out there, uh, that had an indirect effect on us. I went on there a couple of times and read it, and I thought, man, why am I giving somebody this, this control over my emotions when they, they're not even willing to identify themselves? And um, so we, there's still people that put their names out there, but uh, dealing with that is, is also challenging because that's 24-7. You know, I'll get a text, hey, did you see this? Did you see this post? Nope, I sure didn't. Do you feel as that's because that's a great point? Um, you know, we we've been talking with customers and, and clients all over the world about the disinformation aspect, or or the misinformation. It might not be deliberate, um, you know, an I/O campaign against against what's going on, but there is a lot of disinformation and misinformation that's being put out, and and it's driving that fear mongering. Uh, mentality, which creates the panic buying. Did you guys deal with a lot of that in, in Ashland, like we did up here in Michigan? And, and I know Brig dealt with it out in California, but the, the, the fear and the panic buying and the, and the shelves emptying, is that something you guys have experienced? The, for the life of me, the toilet paper perplexes me. I, I just absolutely perplexes me. And maybe it's because we spent time in the Middle East and know Hey, a little water in your hand is okay. You know, just you got a little bit of soap afterwards and you're going to be good to go. Right. I mean, the beauty of the, uh, oh, what's that water flusher. I mean, I got to experience that before I thought, man, I might want one of those in my retirement home. And, and now I understand those sales are going up. On those. But um, yeah, what, what we saw locally here was a little bit of that. Definitely the shelves empty for toilet paper and cleaners. Um, and, uh, you know, sanitation type stuff. Uh, saws go a little bit bare in the meat section, but it, it was still there. We have a, a Kroger's is our, our biggest um, grocery store here. Um, we got a couple of them in the local area. Um, but for the most part, people were pretty steady state. Again, what you see on um, 
what you see on the media, national media, I never know how, you know, do they do a close in shot that shows like all this anxiety is going on and then they accidentally slip out and it's like eight people, you know, you, you thought it was 150 people or something. Disinformation, misinformation, like you said, Steve, I, I guess it sells. But uh, I think for the most part, people have stayed pretty calm here. Um, we do have a food production plant just down the road from us. And I know, um, you know, with everything that's going on, I believe in South Dakota and some of those other places where they've been shut down, uh, the management here has come out and assured everybody that they're taking all the measures, social distancing, et cetera, to keep that plant going. But no, I really haven't seen, uh, haven't seen that too bad. Uh, folks in Lowe's have done a pretty good job of social distancing, you know, some of the hardware places. Um, what I see now is, and I think this reflects nationally and, and also where, where each of us are living is this uh, struggle to when can we open? Uh, a lot of people questioning how severe this threat really was. Well, that's going to be an unprovable number. You know, what is, what is the impact of the social distancing that's gone on? You know, what if we hadn't done that? I, I don't know. But um, I think a pretty calm approach, especially on not, not hoard buying here. Yeah, Mike, I, you know, as far as my background, I spent a lot of my career in Africa, FBI, and um, I think we can always look at those situations, those um, uh, times in our life when, when life was very difficult. And I spent a lot of time by myself in different African countries, uh, hold up sometimes where I couldn't, uh, you know, leave my, my flat or my hotel room uh, because of violence outside or whatever the situation was. Um, but I think, I think my biggest challenge was uh, just that isolation, you know, just being almost in captivity, um, locked down. And I, you know, I, I kind of reflect on that. Um, but I also remember that a lot of that time I was sick, you know, just from eating the different foods in the different places. And if you're country hopping, the food's different in, you know, this country versus this. But, um, um, you know, it can get worse. It can be worse. And, and, and again, I go back to my experience. We had power outages half the day in a lot of places. So I want to ask you as a city manager, um, how are you monitoring, you know, kind of that worst case scenario? If we did get to the point where there was a food shortage, there were power outages, are you concerned about these type of scenarios? That's, that's a really... Uh, it's a great point and a, and a damn hard question. Um, am I am I worried about it? Yes. Am I worried about it in the way that a city manager or public officials would be in New York City? Um, very different environment, um, population, uh, so ultra ultra dependent on those lines of supply. Whereas, and I'm not saying we could flip a switch here and go out and just, you know, hunt deer and squirrels and, and be good to go. But uh, a, large, a large population, a large percentage of our population are active hunters and fishers. And uh, it, it's not as a dense a population here. Uh, we do have a lot of people that do um, self-farming, um, you know, victory gardens or whatever. I, I don't want to go there. But really, I think the focus that we've got on that right now is... Uh, historically, no, we haven't thought about that. I don't have a, for example, I don't have a pandemic uh, response plan on my shelf. I mean, that's one thing that I don't want to sound defeatist. I don't have an operations section as a city manager. And so nobody really thinks about stuff like that. And I, I mean, it's in, the, it's in our mind. Law enforcement uh, definitely is looking, like I said, at the force protection issues. Um, and we've done a, a pretty good job of that. 
But as far as some of these other things as a garrison commander where I had a, a DPTMS that focused on those and had a responsibility to have those plans, we don't have those here. And I don't know, uh, again, because the impact on the economy of this, we are looking at, you know, I mentioned before we had 308 authorized positions. Well, we already had 17 vacancies and we're not hiring those vacancies because our, um, our revenue is going to decrease sharply. I was on a uh, phone call yesterday with the Kentucky City Managers Association and they had some economists, uh, local economists that came in and talked about a 25% reduction uh, in revenues. That's very real. I've, I've got a requirement to the state to have a balanced budget. Uh, we don't do deficit spending here. So, so much in, so much out. Um, we normally hire about 56 seasonals a year. We're not planning on hiring those seasonals. That's going to have a dramatic impact. That's about a 21% if you don't hire the, uh, the 17 vacancies. Uh, we've had some people that have taken, uh, that we've had to lay off, um, that have actually taken voluntary layoffs at this point, but there's going to be some uh, involuntary or involuntary, excuse me, layoffs um, more than likely. And um, that, you know, it's all adding to the complexity of this issue as, okay, well, we still have to provide those services. We still have to provide fire, police, utilities. Um, you know, when I turn on my tap water, I have to know that tap water is good. And I, and I do drink it every day here. We, we, like most communities, have massive utility challenges because of underinvestment. And, and we're not different than the vast majority of communities in the nation. Our water line break rate, the AWWA recommends 14 breaks per 100 miles of pipe per year. Ours is 82. And my water crews, they're spectacular. If they had a water crew uh, distribution line competition, I'd put my guys up against virtually anybody in the nation because they, they get daily practice at fixing breaks and laying pipe. But I think I've avoided your, your tougher question, Brig, and that is, you know, how do, how do we think about those really dire situations where the food uh, supplies in danger. Um, we, we do keep up with the, the uh, state intel um, center that my chief of police coordinates with. Uh, we have a big focus on transportation day to day and especially now, you know, there are things going on that are suspicious that uh, don't look right that are trying to threaten that, um, that line of supply. And so uh, we have good communications with both the gas company and also the electric company. Those, those are privatized organizations. We don't, uh, we're not responsible for those here. I mean, to the point where, hey, you know, our, our electric company sends me an email and some of my key leaders, hey, we're expecting this tough weather event, so be ready for it. We could have power outages, which has an impact on our pump stations, for example. But yeah, in the most dire circumstances, um, that would, I'll just, I'll give you the biggest non-answer. That'd be a tough situation for us. What, I mean, cause we're, we asked a pretty tough question here, right? Um, but what, what keeps you up at night? I mean, what, I mean, what are your, what are your 50 meter targets of, of concern right now? Right. The, the ones that, is it just managing the chaos or is it, I mean, what, 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 bothers you and then how do you how are you handling that as a city manager so there's there's the things that keep me up at night with COVID-19 and then there's the things that keep me up at night uh, just as a normal city manager uh, the ones that keep me up at night uh, prior to COVID-19 is utilities and that is our historic challenges we we are in the midst of bonding ten and a half million dollars which is not all we need it's what we can afford uh, to upgrade, make uh, SCADA upgrades on our water treatment plant. 
to replace filters at our water treatment plant that uh, need to be replaced. Um, we have already dedicated, started two years ago, a million dollars a year in line replacement, which sounds like a lot, um, but it's, it's frankly not enough. Uh, a good water system needs to have at least 1% uh, replaced a year, and, um, and, and we're gearing for that. Uh, we're trying to do that. Again, I got fantastic crews. When they're not doing breaks, they're doing line replacements. Uh, keeping the quality of that water up, making, making sure the disinfectant byproducts uh, and chlorine levels are, are safe. And we've, we've done a magnificent job with that recently. Um, eight straight quarters of, uh, of good ratings from the state uh, was, was not always where we were uh, in the city. Law enforcement is always stretched. And uh, I know my chief of police would love to have more assets. I'd love for him to have more assets. Uh, he did take a great initiative. Uh, we are going to, uh, oh gosh, I forgot the term, fleeting, um, self-fleeting, just forgot the name of it, home fleeting. And uh, we were able to purchase enough vehicles for every officer to take a vehicle home. It gives us an omnipresence, which I think is important. It's going to give us a capability to surge. It dovetails nicely with right now, you know, I, and we don't have them yet. They're on the, on the verge of coming here, but you know, Brig, if you and I are switching vehicles on shifts, you're A shift, I'm C shift, and, you know, we have to go through and clean the whole thing down properly. You're concerned about, hey, Grazy's a slob, maybe he sneezed all over the inside of the vehicle, that type of stuff. So home fleeting will be good for a variety of reasons. The opioid epidemic has really hit us hard here in eastern Kentucky, and I know it's had an impact across the rest of the nation. Um, but because of uh, the unemployment, and now, my gosh, the spiked unemployment that's occurred, um, you know, a lot of people turn to that. Brig, you talked about the, you know, that impact of isolation on you. Man, what a great, great point to think about right now. Um, you know, Francie, my wife goes a little bit nuts. She's not working outside of the home. She does a lot of volunteering at organizations, but she's gotten a little bit stir crazy. And, um, but yeah, probably the law enforcement, the utilities uh, would keep me up at night uh, normally. And not that, our, again, I want to be crystal clear, we've got a certified, fantastic police department and a uh, great uh, fire department. Uh, ISO rating on the, our AF uh, National Fire Department a couple years ago was a two. I think only maybe 10% of departments in the nation get that rating, and we're really gearing for the one. I mean, we want to get that one uh, just as a measure of excellence and how good they are. But um, now, uh, Steve, to your point on during the crisis, it's really that uh, the, the virus gets a hold of those critical sections. And I hate to say it this way, but really the top three in providing that life, health, and safety uh, in no particular order, but uh, fire, police, law enforcement, and then utilities. So if something, uh, if, if something, if the virus gets in and wreaks havoc with one of those staffs, that could be extremely difficult for us. And back to your point earlier, Steve, about the criticality of those mutual aid agreements. So that's probably what keeps me up at night right now. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so we've got one final question, but I'm gonna challenge you because it's gonna be two parts. Um, I just wanted to kind of finish up here and ask you to talk a little bit about, um, first, uh, really kind of your intel capability there and, and how that's different from the military uh, in your position, and then two, continuity of operations. And, and there I'm asking, are there things that are kind of lessons learned? Maybe you're talking to counterparts across the country, but continuity of operations, what can be done on the backside of, of COVID-19? 
First off on the Intel, we do, as I mentioned before, uh, we have state Intel resources. We do have a uh, state police um, detachment, not in Ashland proper, but right at the edge of the city and uh, uh, located in the county. Uh, we utilize those resources. Uh, the Intel that we're getting through the HIDA task force is uh, been especially beneficial. We have a regional working group that shares Intel. This is law enforcement. Um, shares Intel very effectively. So I think what's different for me is that I don't have an S2, right? Uh, that's solely focused on that, but it is distributed. Um, well, it really primarily is the, the chief, uh, the police chief that has got lead uh, on that. Um, on the COOP there, the COOP is really an interesting question. I don't have an op center here in the city building. Um, the, Ashland, Boyd County, Catlettsburg Emergency Management does have an emergency operations center uh, that they can surge to that they've actually been running throughout this crisis. Um, he's got a very thin staff day to day. So they've been supplemented from uh, the county with some people that are doing different types of jobs for them, doing some administrative work tracking. I talked to you about those uh, daily reports that come out and our weekly meetings that we have. And, and it, again, it sounds administrative, uh, but if you don't track that information, it's, it's tough. I have a weekly update with my staff, or excuse me, a daily update with my staff now. We used to have weekly staff calls, and we do a daily update right now uh, that we do via business, uh, Skype for business. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm assembling that information that's on there. How many people have, you know, in the FFCRA categories, how many are in category one, two, and three, four, five, and six? Um, because I want to know... Steve, you know, your question about, or the, the response that I had in your question about the impact on staff, I had the epiphany last night and you guys are probably gonna say, well, yeah, you know, you should have saw this a long time ago, but how many people have been tested in the city, uh, on the city staff have actually had a COVID test? It's not something we've been tracking. Um, and so the administration of that is, is a, a challenge for everybody. But for COOP, for us, as we don't have an operations center and we do have distributive operations, I've got the city building, I've got a, a separate police department that's across the street from us, three fire stations, uh, water plant, the wastewater treatment plant. Um, I have uh, something called the Mill Street facility, which is where wastewater collection and also water distribution work out of. And um, we have a couple other uh, recreational facilities, great parks system here. We've got, if you ever pass through this uh, part of the country, we've got a nearly 50 acre uh, Central Park that's just gorgeous. I mean, it's beautiful. We've had to shut that down uh, right now, except for the perimeter. And if you go out there on any sunny day, you'll see tens, if not hundreds of people walking around uh, that park. It's, it is gorgeous. But of course, we had to shut down the interior because people wouldn't follow, or, or some people uh, would not follow the, uh, you know, the yellow tape not to get on the playgrounds and, and things like that. So we had to take more draconian efforts. And that's one of the challenges now too, is, you know, what, what opening that up is going to look like. But our distributive operations and the different, uh, and I've used this a couple of times, the different disciplines we have uh, enable us to function from different locations. Administratively, it's not a problem. And now if we had, if we had a threat to one of those specific uh, facilities, it would be uh, facility dependent on how we respond to that. And we do have we do actually have some contingency plans uh, for that. And, and some that we've come close, even in my time here, uh, to working because not of threats, um, but because of 
equipment challenges that we were looking at, okay, well, how are we going to get, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but how are we going to get this function done if we're missing this facility? Uh, and so we've actually ran through that and, um, and brainstormed on those. Well, we want to thank Mike Gracie for joining us on the TNG podcast. I've known Mike for over 30 years. He's a great family man. He's a strong leader. He's a humble leader. Um, but he's always been a great servant to his country, to his state, and to the city of Ashland. So we appreciate your time, Mike. Uh, and we want to thank everyone for joining us on the TNG podcast. And you can uh, visit us on our website at tngdefense.com. listening to the North Group Podcast, where security refined by intelligence. If you have questions for us, they can be emailed to info at tngdefense.com or visit our website at www.tngdefense.com. Don't forget to subscribe and stay safe.